One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode, we're interviewing Adam Hanft, a branding veteran who's run numerous agencies with clients that include Sony, Procter & Gamble, Match.com. He is an amazing writer. Uh, uh, you should really check out the articles he's written for Salon, Huffington Post, CNN Wired, The Atlantic. Uh, he's appeared on television numerous times, including on The Daily Show. So we're really delighted to have Adam with us today. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot, intelligence for everyday things, powered by IoT Pixels. So Adam, we were toying with what to call this episode. And so the working title is Everything an IoT Executive Should Know About uh, branding, but is too afraid to ask. And I don't know what your advice is as a branding consultant about that very long title, but essentially the premise of this conversation, just in case people are wondering, why is Adam Hampton on, on this show? You're not a noted IoT semiconductor designer. Um, you're an amazing uh, uh, branding uh, person who's, who's advised... Uh, politicians, uh, some of whom became uh, presidents of their respective countries, um, to uh, major CPG brands. But, you know, in, on this show, we try to assist solution designers realize the vision that they have for uh, bringing digital and physical worlds together. And one of the things that I have learned is that you can have the best technology in the world, but unless you can get people to use it, it's kind of pointless. So um, do you think, uh, other than being a, a ripoff of a Woody Allen title, everything an IoT executive should know about branding, but is too afraid to ask, is that a reasonable, how would you critique that? Well, first I will just, you know, my wife will shoot me for correcting you, but Woody Allen ripped it off from a book. There was a very popular book in the 70s, Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex, for referred to as by, I think, Dr. David Rubin, his name was. And then Woody Allen licensed it or whatever. So I don't think there's any category that can evade um, the need to brand itself, either as a category itself, and you have trade associations doing that all the time, right? And we've talked about that, or as a brand particularly, I would say, in a immature, fast-growing, and often complicated category like IoT. 
So, you know, one of the things that we've, we sort of collective, we have learned over the years about branding has a lot to do with what behavioral psychology tells us, which is we are sort of wired, you know, the fast brain, slow brain. So basically um, it was um, categorized by um, Daniel Kahneman and I forgot the guy, oh, the guy was Tversky, who's, um, they wrote a book called Fast Brain Slow Brain, but they did a huge amount of research before, uh, and Dan won a Nobel Prize for it. Um, so the idea is that we evolved with a amygdala, a, a fast brain that tells us the tiger is there, go the other way, and a slow brain, the rational brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is where executive function lies. And for the most part, marketers for a long time, maybe they intuitively got the slope, the fast brain, slow brain dichotomy, but they never really deployed the insight. And we, as an industry, marketed really to the slow brain. So all the concept testing that, you know, has been done over the years and all the focus groups and all the other marketing where you ask people something, that's the slow brain at work. And that's not exactly how people make decisions. People make decisions based on the fast brain and the associations of the fast brain. So um, when you understand that, then you say, okay, the brand is really important because it makes that instant connection with the, with the fast brain and what the psychologists call all the neural networks and neural associations around it. So if I said to you, particularly, you know, Nike, Marlboro, you know, Apple, your fast brain connects it and then those and those are really deep imprints. An example of that is they've done some work with Apple that's really interesting. So they took three groups of people and they showed them the Apple logo, not the, just the, the Apple. And then they had them do a task that measured creativity. And there are tasks psychologists use to measure creativity. And um, they saw, the, so the three groups um, were exposed as follows. One, saw the Apple logo on a level of consciousness that was long enough to register. One saw so fast, second group, that it was subliminal, but it registered unconsciously. And the third group didn't see it at all. So the third group performed sort of at the baseline for the creativity test. The first group, the one that saw it and registered it, performed at the highest level. And then the group that saw it unconsciously still performed above the norm, above the baseline. So the theory is, and it's just that there's something about all the advertising that Apple did and all the associations with creativity, with Think Different, the inspirational marketing, the brand, the inspiration of the brand actually inspired and encouraged people to think more creatively. So it shows you the power of a brand and, um, and the importance of communicating to the, to the fast brain as well as the slow brain. And Apple does both. You know, the Mac versus PC commercials were slow brain. It was like, we do this, they do that. They don't do this, we do that. It was classic side-by-side -side comparison. But it was in the context of going back to the 1984 commercial, all the branding that had been done to make Apple sort of the, the inspirational brand that got people to um, rise to new heights of, of creativity and imagination. And you see it now, shot on the iPhone 12, shot on the iPhone 11, whatever it is, all those huge billboards that you see all over. They're not telling you how many pixels are on the camera or what the resolution of the lens is. And all the reviews are a lot of them anyway. Say, oh, the, the Google phone is better or whatever, or the, or, the, or the Android phone, the Samsung lens is better. It doesn't matter because the power of that imagery, of that brand is so, is so great.
So, so getting back to this category that's so new, it's really a land grab. Nobody owns that brand space yet. And to your point, Steve, about the best brand always wins, you know, the classic example of that is um, Betamax, for those who are old enough to remember it. If not, it, you can look it up. It's a classic business school's story. The uh, VHS was inferior. Uh, the, the resolution of the Sony product was better. I think it played longer. It had a whole host of benefits. But they couldn't convince the consumer or, for that matter, the studios to kind of release on the better platform. So it, it disappeared and VHS became the platform. So if you're, and you know, so I think the truth still holds, the, the heuristic still holds. If you're in a platform business where you need to build an ecosystem like you did back then, hasn't changed really, um, you, you need to, you need to uh, recognize the power of the brand, not to ignore the superiority, the importance of superiority. But a lot of, a lot of times, startups in tech are the vision of product people, which makes perfect sense. That's what they do. That's where the breakthroughs come from. And there's often, I don't want to say um, the dismissal, but there can be of the sizzle. Right. Oh, that's just marketing. Like there's a belief that the best brand or best technology always wins. And it's just not the case. But it's it's understandable. And the the more enlightened founders recognize that, more I think more and more we're seeing it. And they're bringing in branding earlier in the process so that they can have the advantages of that discipline, that skill sitting side by side with product. Does that still apply in B2B? It's it's hard to argue against Apple in in direct to consumer uh, b2c businesses but um i think it is i i i, I think it's very true in b2b and uh, you know there are categories like cybersecurity where you have dominant players but then you talk to people that are challenging they're the davids versus the goliaths and they will they are frustrated that why is it that fireeye or palo alto networks is has stock valuation this high, is growing this much, when we're pro our product is better. Well, and it might be better, and it often is, but they've got the big brand. They've also, the power of the big brand in a case like that and other B2B verticals is people are willing to sacrifice a part of an end-to-end -end solution to get the end-to-end -end solution. And they're not going to get caught up, again, as fast brain, in the nuances of, well, this piece on the daisy chain is not as good as I can get if I went a la carte and plugged it in. But the complexities of plugging it in, the risk of the whole thing breaking or taking longer to implement or anything else is dramatic. So big sales force, there's, there's so many big dominant brands are, are very much today's version of nobody ever got fired. For hiring IBM. That's I was thinking of exactly that when you were talking about that. The IBM brand, classic B two B. Although some of us bought typewriters from them, but uh, but basically B two B, and it was about fear. It was really about the the fear of oh we've got a I'm a I'm a, a CIO. Uh, I've got this impossible job. I know that things are going to go wrong. Right. What's what's my biggest fear? I'm going to get fired for this thing. But if I bought IBM, then I'd be okay. And uh, that I, I think is just a classic branding uh, move. Maybe 
I'm just trying to think of more modern uh, equivalents uh, of that in B2B. And, and would you say something like uh, blockchain? Uh, blockchain is double-edged. I, I, I sort of have a negative reaction to it personally, but it's also like got this sizzle, which is if you're an innovation person, you've got to be doing distributed logic. You've got to be, is that a brand that, that, that's been successfully goosed, do you think? Or what are your thoughts? So I think it's interesting to think about blockchain and the ledger as a brand, because it is, right? It, it, it clearly is. And it, it is a brand, I would say, for a couple of reasons. One is a, a brand um, creates a sense of connection, a value connection between the user and itself. And people who early on, it's less true now, but it's early on embrace certainly uh, crypto versus fiat currency and blockchain feel that they are the innovative thinkers. They are the early adopters. They, they are personal brands and the blockchain brand um, as, 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 as a disruptor of traditional um, uh, data capture, data storage are consistent, right? So I feel that, so blockchain has succeeded in starting as sort of the, the operating system for crypto and now has become a, a brand unto itself and as a technology. So as you hear Jamie Dimon and people like that or talk about we're going to be moving to blockchain, when you hear Powell, you know, at the Fed talk about we're going to be looking at blockchain and not dismissing it. And then when you have the Chinese against it, certainly against crypto, sort of depositioning it um, and then look who's against it you know, people who want to have a lockdown economy. So I think a lot of things have come together to elevate the blockchain, the blockchain brand as a, as sort of the future of, um, and the ledger as the future of, of the economy in a lot of ways. So we've, we've talked about a few examples of effectiveness of brands. I feel like uh, you know, success in this business where it's all about storytelling, right? And I realized that I've not done a very good job of structuring this story because we need to structure the problem and the, you know, the, 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 the challenge and uh, the existential threat uh, before right. um, guiding people to the solution. I do want to talk about what IoT entrepreneurs and solution designers, someone working in a big company can do with branding to sell their idea. But let's let's take a step back and just give ourselves as an IoT industry a report card and let's talk about what the consequences are of the current state of, uh, or the worst of, of, of branding. You know, what I can say is, you know, I looked at our website and I thought it was pretty good. And then we started having a conversation with you and I realized, oh my God, this is just, it's just like everyone else's and it's not, digestible and uh, what, how would you grade the technology industry, the IOT industry in terms of its success in branding? And what do you think are the consequences, assuming that it's not an A plus, which I'm guessing it isn't, uh, what, what do you think the consequences of, of that lack of branding? We don't need to wallow too much, but I think a little wallowing yeah. in the problem the is, wallowing is, is good. I agree. So, you know, I think I think the challenge for anybody in the IoT space is the is the equilibrium between talking about the moment being here, this epic 
uh, transformational moment as physical and digital converge, as you said, which is really exciting, but universally applicable across anybody in the IoT space or maybe anybody in NFTs for that matter, which is physical, digital and physical combined. So sort of the, the, the equilibrium between celebrating this moment and then finding your place in that moment that's differentiated. And I think in general, that is the, the art and the most difficult challenge of B2B branding, technical, technical B2B, technology B2B branding, which is you have to find that sort of golden middle. If you tilt too far to this is a, this, the moment is here, or the industry is being transformed, then you're lost among everybody who's celebrating that the moment is here. If you drop down too much into your differentiation too quickly, um, and the bits and the bytes, fees and speeds, as they used to call it, you know, in, in PC marketing, then nobody's going to care enough. You're not going to really build that story. So I think you need, you need a, you know, story storytelling is about a middle beginning, middle and end. So I think the beginning needs to be up here. You need to have a unique way of talking about it. And then you need to drop down at the right time to where you fit and why you're differentiated. And you need, and you need to keep that lens on all the time, I think. And I think the other issue in B2B is, and, and I, you know, I don't, it could be, you know, it could be um, cybersecurity or it could be digital health or it could be pretty much any vertical. People default to familiar language. And there's a sort of a mushy, there's a tepid, mushy kind of vocabulary that becomes pervasive. And um, what happens is that you need, and this is the advice part, you need um, a CEO or head of marketing who is courageous enough to not just default to the comfortable. You know, pattern recognition is a powerful thing. It gets back to fast brain, right? That's why we're here. We all, we're good at pattern recognition. So we're comfortable. If I've heard it before, that's okay. As opposed to, I've heard it before, go back to your office and come back with something I haven't heard before. That doesn't happen enough. And that's why oftentimes in, in the marketing world, we do a test where we take the logo off and we just put all the claims together on one PowerPoint slide and say to even to the to the, somebody who runs the company or runs marketing, which is you and which is your competitor, half the time they can't tell the difference. Interesting. So how do you know you've got a branding problem? I would say if you fail that test they just described, which is if your language is interchangeable. I think if you if you don't clearly have a narrative that speaks to a higher mission of the company than just putting the physical and the digital together, like what are you trying to solve in the world? Is one of the things we talked about in terms of you know the impact on the economy. Um, if you're not solving something that really is monumental um, and important, you are you you have a branding problem because you're stuck in your own features and functions. You have to the brand has to find a way to take what otherwise would be features and functions that are fine and make them even more meaningful. That's how you know you've got a successful brand. When other people who say, you know, my product is a little bit, I have 5% improvement here, 3% better there, but your brand is winning by 100%. That's how you know you've, you, you, you've won the day. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're an industry full, there's some amazing companies with incredibly powerful, potent technology 
that are not doing as well as you feel like they should be. And, and it's like, why are people not getting that? And I really feel like we are stuck in a bit of an echo chamber. We end yeah. up marketing to each other. And yeah. to cross the chasm, we need the CEO or the, the CTO, uh, who's got a million things on her or his mind, to make it simple. And, and, and we need to be kind of like ERP. ERP is not a, a particularly sexy brand, but everyone accepts you need an ERP. You need an accounting system. You're not asked to do right. all the things that we're asked because it's just generally accepted. Exactly. So where do you think where do you think the industry is in terms of the challenge? Is it that the technology is not being implemented fast enough? And is that because there's a history of false starts and overpromise? You know, it's, I think it's called Amara's Law, which is technology is always overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. And do you think we're somewhere in that cycle? Totally, yeah. I mean, uh... Apple injected a tiny smidgen of branding pixie dust into this when they came up with the iBeacon. And it wasn't much. It was just a, just a right. footnote on a slide. Right. And hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital poured into, into <laughs> the business as a result of that tiny bit of branding. Right. Because Bluetooth Beacon's indoor positioning existed before that. But right. it was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm uh, head of merchandising. I need iBeacon in the store. What is it? Just go and right. do it. Don't care. Just do it. And we of that, we kind of let that slip through our fingers because the reality was it took an awfully long time to deploy infrastructure. Infrastructure slows things down and people kind of got distracted. And right. so we never got the benefits that come from people actually finishing off what they started. So uh, so we've been left with a slow wander towards this space. And I think there's great room for optimism because Apple are back again. Now we've got the um, AirTag, which is telling right. us, oh, yeah, you don't want to lose things. You want to find things. And uh, so that's uh, Yeah, but AirTag was, was basically their version of Tile, which had been around for, what, seven years, eight years? Indeed. Indeed. But so Apple, no, Apple's the kingmaker, to your point, Steve, right? Apple says iBeacon, Apple says AirTag, and that's the power of a brand, right? It doesn't just impact yourself, it impacts the full ecosystem. I mean, I, at the risk of getting political, um, I, I look at things, the, the irrational beliefs, and you can read this from either side, so, so I think it's okay. <laughs> you, you look at how siloed we are as a nation and how fervently people believe things that are clearly not factually true. Right. And you see the power of a brand there. And we're kind of missing that in the application of a bunch of IoT technology that does work. Right, uh, you're right. I mean, that gets back to the fast brain, right? So if we believe something we hear something that contradicts it, it's called the confirmation bias, then we double down, that's how conspiracy theories happen. We double down on our existing belief because we don't want to be, we don't want to be destabilized. And, you know, I mean, take Apple, good example, right? So you can tell people who are Apple fanboys and girls about Apple's problems with child labor in China all you want. You can talk to your blue in the face. It's not going to change their perspective about Apple one minute. 
But if you have the same conversation with them about Walmart, who they don't like for whatever reason, they'll be all over Walmart and say we should boycott Walmart tomorrow. So it has to do with the going in perception of the brand. Yes. So, okay, we've convinced each other that branding is a good thing. Um, what do we do about it? How can I go and be uh, a bit more like uh, Apple or Nike and a bit less like someone with a 10-page uh, value proposition that no one's going to read? I, I would say that you have to start off by understanding two sides of market fit, emotional market fit and rational market fit. And everybody who's a buyer of your product needs to be satisfied at both levels. That's sort of the narrative thing I was saying. And too often product people are just focused on the rational market fit. But there is something called, an, or I would call an emotional market fit. And that's really important to understand. And just because you're selling to somebody who is theoretically rational to your point and make, checks all the boxes, you know, that's not how it works. So I, I often like to say that drug, that big pharma selling to doctors, okay? Nobody should be more rational than a physician making a decision about what drug to use. But if you look at the numbers, big pharma, I don't know if it's true anymore, but for a long time because of the regulations, but big pharma spent more money on marketing than on R&D for years. Why is that? Because taking the doc to dinner and, you know, getting tickets and all the other things, which I think now you can't do, built a relationship between the detailed person and the physician. So if the drug, they're not going to prescribe a drug that they think is completely off base, but the differences between drugs that are approved for the same condition, same indication, are very often very close. It's not different than what we're talking about with some of these technology brands or IoT. The differences are small. And I believe that when the differences are small, the brand has to be big. You have to tell a bigger story around it and get people into the, into the tent with you. So how do you do that? I, I think a, a good exercise is forget what you have now. You have it. Put it over here. Now look at the market, the market needs, and say, if we were going to start from scratch, and didn't have all the legacy issues or this engineer who loves this feature or that engineer who's in love with this capability and we're committed. If we had to start from scratch, build a new business, knowing what we know, the innovator, getting around the famous innovators dilemma, which is not just true for big companies, it's true for little companies too, startups. What would we build from scratch? And then compare what would we build if we had a extra sketch and we can just start over versus what we have. And then find a way to what, take what you have and make it more relevant and then build a brand around that. So we're, 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 I mean, I'm just trying to get to grips with that. So we put to, to one side the thing that we had uh, or we have um, that has probably, you talked about the innovator's dilemma. So this is just one of my favorite technology strategy books, you, you end up listening to your customers too much and you produce this Swiss army knife on steroids where you end right. up missing the bulk of the, the market. So we're going to dispense with all of that complexity and you're kind of advising us to reimagine what we've got and just focus yeah. on the things that can you can really relate to 
the, the, the powerful forces that, that, that really motivate people? Is that what you're saying? Or yes, did I and also, yes, but also understand sort of your own power. So if I had said to you or pretty much anybody, like before the pandemic, you, you know what's going to happen? American business or global business, for that matter, is going to have to move from the office to the home within 14 days, 10 days. Everything will have to, every function, your ERP function, Salesforce, everything will have to move. SAP, everything will have to move. Your HR department, your legal department, no one can come to the office. The whole economy, they'll say impossible, it could never happen. Everything would collapse. Nobody would think it can, but it happened with remarkable fluidity. So what is the, what is the application of that? Create your own emergency. But yes. CEOs don't like to do that, and, and with good reason, because um, it stresses people out, it destabilizes them. But I think that's a, there's a really important lesson to be learned in how quickly and we adapted in, in, in a really brilliant way. The resilience was there. So companies, I think, and people who work there are often more resilient than, than the leadership gives them. And sometimes they're looking for the leadership to to pivot more more dramatically and not be so equivocal about it, not be so reluctant to shock the system. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. It, there's, there's CEOs that uh, I recognize they, one of their techniques is creating crisis because it kind of frees people up. Uh, it does. The other thing is uh, related to this branding question, the amount to which CEOs, CMOs, whatever, tend to overstate how the end user or the customer um, sees them is wildly exaggerated. So like, how many times have you heard, I've heard often, well, we can't change because everybody knows us for that. Well, nobody nobody really knows us for that. It's like, you've said it so many times in so many sales meetings and so many sales calls that you think everybody knows you for that. And you're therefore afraid to risk changing because you think you're pulling the rug out from your own perception. But in fact, People don't necessarily know you for that. And also the ability to create something new in this in this environment is so much easier than it's ever been before. This is hilarious because I take the same principle and I apply it to completely the opposite <laughs> prescription. My, really? my view is just because um, you think everyone's bored with what you've said because you've been saying it over and over again. You actually That's need to keep true. on saying it over and over okay. again. Saying well, the same thing, but through a different. But it's the same point, right? Yes. Yes. If it's the right, if you believe it's the right thing, don't get bored with it. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. But don't don't assume that everybody knows it, and therefore you can't change it. Right. So you should be free to change, but you also need to say. Look, uh, 99% of people have never heard this before. And for goodness sake, be consistent and don't change every 10 minutes. Uh, right, right. Um, and the don't change every 10 minutes piece, which I agree with, is, is difficult to um, maintain in a world of paid social acquisition or LinkedIn or whatever it is. And they need to constantly iterate A, B, C, D, E, F, G tests, right? So... We've all seen like the most beautiful brand books and this is what we stand for and this is our story kind of wither on the vine when they don't respond well, uh, when, the, when the user doesn't respond well, the ROAS between, you know, behind the uh, lead gen campaign isn't there. Then all of a sudden, you know, 30 days later, 
a beautiful brand book that somebody paid a fortune for goes over here and you just see sort of more desperation enter into the marketing cycle. Um, yeah. So in that way, I think, you know, social acquisition, lead gen is, 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 is sort of the, it's clearly the enemy of consistency. Um, yes. And it's also the enemy of um, risk-taking because if it doesn't, you know, Seinfeld was, I think, the, wor- the lowest-rated pilot in the history of NBC. So um, it took a while for people to understand it, pick up on the nuances, get the joke, right? But, yes. if we're in a, but we're now in a world of sort of instant detonation, instant, you know, pull the record. Tell Tell us, I think we've been getting to another question that I kind of had in the back of my brain, which is what are the top five things that brands, or that, that, uh, that the companies do that are just terrible branding decisions? And we've already been talking about some of them, but to just let's bang home the simplicity of, I mean, a lot of, you, you did this, amazing campaign around uh, BIC uh, and and the beauty of it, it was short. Tell me about why I should be ruthless in terms of short messaging versus long messaging. I think it's obvious, but it can't be that obvious because we don't do it and the rest of the industry is not doing it. So what's the prescription there? Well, you know, often when I, Couple of times, I gave um, I gave talks at uh, venture conferences to CEOs and, and, and heads of marketing, and I ended with a an image, and you can find it on the internet. It's tongue in cheek, obviously. It's a mock HR form. It's called the Hurt Feelings Report. And I said, if you're going to be successful at branding, you need a you need one of these on your desk because there's no doubt that somebody is going to be injured emotionally. As I said, it's their product, it's their idea, their tagline, whatever it is. So short is, short requires that somebody might not like it. Long is a, is a, um, is a crutch because basically it gives everybody something to hold on to. And it's, it's really the worst example of sort of marketing by committee, how a camel was invented, all of those. So I think, I think there's a radical minimalism in short that is is important and all but it's it's got to be short but also jolting in some way you know take two words like that don't necessarily go together all the time but you put them together and that that forces the brain to stop for a minute like, so you're you kind know, of throwing a speed bump. Uh, like I, call the, 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 I call it a mental speed bump. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, um, there's a company, Ugly Beauty, you know, things like that. Um, things that you don't expect. And then your, 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 your brain forces itself to try to deconstruct it. I think, I think short can be brilliant or short also could be, you know, cliched. You know, how many brands have said the future of X? you know, transforming Y, the new era of Z. So short is good, but it's not the sole determinant. It's what do you, short is actually um, the acid test of differentiation because within that compression, you really need to 
say something that is meaningful. And novel? Does it have to be novel? When does when does novelty? I mean, if it's all so completely novel that you can't relate to it, then that's kind of too novel. But I, I, the thing that makes me cringe is when I read stuff and I'm like, this has not been written by a human being. It's been written by some kind of Soviet committee. And I reject this just on principle. I'm, I'm not even going to just go near it because it's so offensive to me that this is... Uh, you're not giving me the respect that you think I'm a human being. You think that I'm going to absorb I this. Think, I agree with you. That's manifesto. The, the Politburo test. I agree. And I think we know it intuitively. And I think we, we've talked a lot about copy messaging. We haven't really talked that much about visuals. But I think that's also true the, the, that the lack of respect is true for stock photography, right? So... We've, we, we know what stock photography is. We've seen it a million times and we intuitively recognize it. So, you know, if you're going to show me, if you're a HR company, you're going to show me a shot of a lot of happy people going like this, you know, at a offsite. I know it's bull and I'm not going to believe it. And in fact, you're not respecting me because you think I will believe that that is actually authentic, right? Yes. So, now, this gets back to budget. So it costs a lot more money to shoot for a photography shoot than a Getty Images license, right? And if you don't believe in the power of branding and the aesthetic part of branding, you're not going to, you, whoever that you is, is not going to say, I'm going to approve, you know, whatever the number is, 50, 75,000, whatever, for this video or for this photography shoot. Why not? Why can't I just get some stock imagery or stock photos? But... That's like saying, you know, why can't I just, if you were designing a product, you wouldn't say, well, why can't I use this off-the-shelf um, IoT configuration? I got to design my own. That's my brand. You would never you would never think about going to whatever is the Getty equivalent of, of I'm sure there is, uh, of, uh, of, um, of a chip configuration, a chipset, right? You'd want to make it your own because it's got to live up to your, to your product promise. Well, your brand promise is just as important as your product promise. Now, if you don't believe that, then you're going to spend, you know, you know, 5% of the money on getting images and the future of X. Yes. Yeah. I, I, when I wrote, um, this beacon technology book, which this spawned this podcast, cause basically I didn't want to stop doing the research. I wanted to keep on talking to interesting people. I used a bunch of stock photography and, and, and it's kind of a legacy of uh, maybe it was me or maybe it was the way things were done five years ago or I was just too naive. But now I feel like there's a premium on authenticity and, you know, that's why social media works is because it's, you know, seen to be authentic. The most horrendous things get by because they're deemed to be uh, authentic. Um, so maybe we can give up on some production. Can we give up on some production values if we are I think so. showing I just authenticity? Saw, I, I just saw a study, I'll send it to you, about produced versus crowdsourced or sort of handmade videos and social. And this was consumer, so it's a different world. But I, I do think that while the manifestation of authenticity is different in tech the the principle behind it i think is consistent i think people to your point about when you read something you know that it's just vomited back from 100 powerpoint decks people you know people people 
know that. Um, I worked on um, a really interesting HR tech platform in Southern Israel, but it's global called HiBob. Mm-hmm. And basically it disrupts the traditional HR industry with, uh, with tools that are very much like what millennial often um, employees are used to dealing with on their phones. So it's a very app-based, it's very socially based, it's not bogged down with the traditional um, tools that are built for HR leaders. So it puts the consumer or the user first. Then, so that when you go to the website, which has just really interesting graphic imagery, not just not stock photography, the first thing it says is, glad you're here, which is a statement about glad you're working for this company, glad you're part of Hi Bob. It's a very welcoming invitational message as opposed to the HR platform that helps you know companies manage their employee satisfaction or whatever the traditional way is. It's colloquial. Um, so I think, and that's selling that's B2B. And you know, it's uh you could argue to your point earlier about IBM or our point, you know, you're ripping out workday or you're whipping out ripping out a traditional HR platform, you're putting in some some crazy Israeli startup called Hi Bob. And it says, glad you're here. But there was something so honest and disarming about it that um, it captured attention. It's doing extremely well. It's raised a lot of money. But it recognizes its audience, too. It's not, it's starting, it's sort of a land and expand strategy. It's not going to be going after Ford right away. It's attracting like-minded companies who share its values, who, who recognize how hard it is to keep and attract talented employees. Um, and they've got an interesting product model. So everybody does traditional um, org chart, right? But they use AI and a lot of data that they collect to create a different kind of an org chart. So you may fit here in the org, in a traditional org chart. But if, if you understand who you're connected with in the company, they have a lot of clubs and groups. So who you're connected with clubs and groups, who did you maybe recruit into the company? Um, looking at data, how important to you, to others, all of a sudden you may be down here in the organization, but if you leave, you pull that piece out, a lot of people become vulnerable. So it's a, it's a, it's a three-dimensional org chart that looks at a lot more data than just traditional rank. So, um, so that's a good example of, we didn't, that's important product innovation, but it sits under this idea of, hey, we're glad you're here. Welcome. Excellent. Well, I think the essence of this, uh, or at least part of it, is the humanity of it. Um, uh, I think doing branding well is fun as well. And uh, I, um, what role does humor have in I'll get in to this. branding? So let me just say about humanity because they connect humor and humanity, right? So yes, I think that you know IoT is about as we started off by saying the convergence of the digital and the physical. Um, I think we've seen with Zoom fatigue and a lot of other manifestations that we of the pandemic, we're hungering for humanity, right? We're hungering for connection. Um, so I think maybe there's too much emphasis on the digital side and not enough on the conversions with the human side of IoT. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's an area for some innovation and some fresh thinking. Um, because clearly, at the end of the day, like with Williad, when you put an IoT pixel on a product, 
some human being at the end of the day, either a consumer or a technician or a doctor who's looking at a prescription vial, is going to be part of that kind of continuum, that chain. And we got to, you know, and that is important. Sort of that is our version of sort of Apple's connection with people. It's what that what what that tag could bring to you in that moment. The, mm. the, 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 um, the palpability of those insights. So I think humor, so humor, you know, humor obviously watch the Super Bowl. I mean, you know, 80% of the commercials are, are designed to make you laugh and make you cry. Um, humor is something that we talked about courage before. A lot of marketers are afraid of humor. Humor is um, threatening because it is something that maybe means you're not serious. You know, that's now you're seeing a lot more humor. When I started off in this business, that was like certain like Procter and Gamble, you said CPG. Humor, can't do humor, it trivializes our product. Now, of course, you know, they're doing really funny commercials. So there's a lot of different kinds of humor, obviously. Um, I think that it plays a huge role. It builds relationships. Why do you think that when a politician is up before a hostile audience, the first thing they'll do, or even a friendly, the first thing they'll do is they'll tell three jokes. Ronald Reagan, the master of humor, right? Humor breaks down barriers and builds emotional connections between people, particularly self-deprecating humor. It says we're all yes. the same at the end of the day. I don't think brands use it strategically enough, in fact. I think it's a really powerful weapon used right. So yeah, that classic, I refuse to use the youth and ex inexperience of my opponent exactly. uh, <laughs> against exactly. him. I mean, exactly. he basically won, won the election. <laughs> exactly. Was, and I think Mondale knew it at that moment, too. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's easy to dismiss humor. It's nuanced, and it's not always easy to use it in the right way. It's like a spice. You put too much in, and it becomes too jokey. But it, I think it has a really powerful role, particularly, um, I think, with younger people, with millennials, because there's an anti-humor, obviously, is the famous uh, weapon of the powerless, right? It's the weapon of the oppressed. That's why during the Soviet period, all these jokes, are, there's a huge history of humor being used by the, the disenfranchised. So, and a lot of millennials feel that way. They feel, uh, you can tell by the survey data, that the system was rigged. It's working against them. They're not going to live as well as their parents, the first generation, to uh, be in that position. So, I think you, I think humor is under leveraging, and particularly, as I said, with this generation who is looking for somebody who can use wit and irreverence uh, to challenge authority. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So Adam, as you may recall, we have this weird tradition in the show of asking our guests about their musical tastes and in particular the songs that uh, uh, have some significance. And you are, we've done over, I don't know, approximately 150 shows. You're the very first person that actually knew where I stole that idea from, uh, Desert Island Discs. So congratulations on that. If I had a trophy, I'd send it to you. Um, What are your three songs? So um, I chose three songs that are meaningful clearly, but also that I thought had some broader cultural relevance since there's just so many songs that one one might love. So I I thought I would choose some that um, told a bit of a story and probably reflect well on me since it's a branding conversation. So every choice you make is a brand choice, right? So the first, the first song I thought we could talk about quickly is um, Take the A-Train, um, classic jazz song. And many, many people have covered it. Ella Fitzgerald included. Duke Ellington wrote it, although if you kind of go back deeper, he he stole it actually from a guy named Billy Strayhorn, who was a, a, a gay collaborator of his and didn't really have the, um, the confidence to kind of come out, if you will, and take credit for the song. So there's sort of an interesting piece there. Mm. And so it's an, it's an incredible, rollicking, memorable, you know, jazz piece. But also sort of in this post-pandemic world when people are thinking about, um, you know, what's going to happen to cities. So take the A-Train up to Harlem. Um, mm-hmm. And it was written right around the time of the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance, which was a fascinating period of history. So, I, so that's, that's a really multi-layered sort of resonant piece of music for me. Very typical of you to look at things from uh, multiple layers. Is, is there a, a time when you heard it that comes to mind or is it just something that's omnipresent? You know, it's hard to remember. It's a good question. Um, my parents were big jazz fans. So there was always some kind of Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, you know, Billy Holiday music going on in the background. So I think maybe that's part of it also. It just sort of made an imprint. Um, but um, it's just full of joy and and a period of history in New York when anything was possible, and hopefully it can be that way again. Um, I made a wacky choice for the second one. So I have two, actually. So I'll do them quickly. One is from The Wizard of Oz, believe it or not, Ding Dong, The Witch oh. is Dead. So everybody talks about, you know, um, Over the Rainbow from from the music, from the musical. Mm-hmm. But I like that particular song, I don't play it all the time, but there's something about it that's powerful because it's a celebration of victory. Maybe it's because of the pandemic, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. It's sort of metaphorical. You know, The Wizard of Oz was written by basically two immigrant Jews, Harold Arlen, whose father was a cantor in Buffalo, and Yipparberg, who 
I don't know who spoke, you know, Yiddish and English at home. So it's sort of like an immigrant triumph also, you know, Ding Dong, the witch is dead. It's about mm-hmm. immigrants kind of rising to the top of sort of American culture. So that's kind of cool, I think. It is. Um, yeah. I, was gonna, I, was, I was going to say a song that I really hate to love, but kind of love, and that's Smile, you know, Charlie Chaplin, Modern Times, because it oh. is the schmaltziest, corniest song in the world. But coming out of the pandemic, you know, maybe it has a surprising meaning to it. And then mm-hmm. A Hard Rain is going to fall Bob Dylan. So it seems like, you know, that's a song about warning and about um, we're going to end up paying for our um, for our societal sins. Obviously, it was written in the 60s. But, you know, the hard rain's falling now by climate change. The hard rain is falling about, you know, social inequity. I, I don't want to get too sort of pretentious about it, but... One of the things about that song that's so incredibly powerful is its universal applicability. You know, um, there are consequences to um, behavior. So, yeah, there you have it. very thought-provoking, love and original. No one's ever chosen any of those songs before, and we actually have quite a lot of repeats on this. What are the, what the, are the repeats? So. What other repeat? Oh, um, there's a lot of David Bowie, um, um, kind of Ziggy Stardust, space. Right. related things which is great i love david yeah. bowie but it's uh you know it's 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 uh it's after after i, I can't the only time i don't like it when someone chooses life on mars is it's like it's not really about you uh, it's uh it's clever uh, but right. it's not really about you and i i love these song choices when it tells you a little about a bit about the person and uh um i think it's really interesting when these songs evoke childhood memories as well um yeah. for me uh jazz does that as well and uh <laughs> I, I actually we're gonna go i'm just putting together a uh, music for my father's um uh, memorial he passed away at the beginning of the covid thing and it was in england and so we can finally get back to england uh, right. and uh um so we're gonna have dave brubeck which is kind of one of my uh my songs uh which uh because that was uh, take, five. Know, the, take five yes yeah yeah, I, uh, yeah something it, I mean, that song, take five. you hear the yeah. first you know chord and you know what if you know it you know it right it's like yes or maybe unsquare dance which i really like he died pretty recently actually to himself he lived a yeah. while he did i uh, saw him perform even when i was uh, a student Wonderful. Well, thanks very much, Adam. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about your career. Uh, We're very fortunate to be working with you. And I was kind of in a guilty kind of fashion looking at you on Wikipedia. And uh, I'd already read uh, a few things that you'd written and just loved them. But uh, I'd love to, how did you get in this business? And it seems like you you were a writer in showbiz before you were. Uh... Yeah. Well, first I have to say, uh, I think I'm lucky to work, be working with you guys. So the feeling is mutual. Um, I started in advertising, not during, not during the Mad Men period. I was sort of the next generation, but there was a lot of the, of the residue of the free martini lunch still around. I'll ha- I have to say. Um, and I was working, um, at what was then a hot creative agency. And, um, I was enjoying it, but I always, when I was a kid, speaking of childhood memories, I had always thought that comedy writing would be like the coolest thing in the world to do. And just by happenstance, I had shot a couple of commercials with folks who were in 
some of the, um, well, the, in the cast members of some of the Gary Marshall shows. At that time, Gary Marshall sort of owned, became a film director. But at that time, he had Laverne Shirley, Happy Days. He sort of owned uh, Primetime. So I got friendly, you know, with some of the talents, including a guy named Phil Foster, who was Laverne's father, if you're a geek, uh, if you're a Nick at Night geek. And he said, you know, show me some of the things you've written. I'll show them to Gary. So I, in those days, there was no email, obviously. So I put a few things together. I showed it to Gary. And I had never worked in, in Hollywood. And Gary said, said this is great. Um, come work with me for like a couple months and see what happens. And to his credit, obviously, the Writers Guild runs, you know, Hollywood. And it's incredibly um, undemocratic, very difficult to get into the Writers Guild. So what Gary would do to open it up, he would hire people as researchers because you didn't need to be uh, approved by the Writers Guild. You could hire any jerk to be a researcher. So I was one of those jerks. And I went out there, Paramount Lodge. It was very glamorous. For I did that for about two or three months, maybe a little longer. I had taken a leave from the agency. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't know if I wanted to kind of keep doing it. Maybe I should have. So I went back um, into the agency business. Um I'll say that, you know, you learn a tremendous amount about, particularly from Gary, you know, about storytelling, about structure, about character development, about all those things, and about working in, you know, a half hour compressed time period, which is really invaluable because storytelling is so much a part of what we do. It's part of marketing. It's part of branding. Um, you know, it was true then in the era of the 60-second commercial, believe it or not. Now, you know, you got six-second internet videos, but the same principles apply. So I went back to the agency um, and then I had a series of jobs, you know, as people did in those days, moving from one creative agency to the other. It was an exciting time, as I said, in the business because people felt like they were creating work that was really breakthrough and everybody was trying to outdo everybody else. And you run to the office of the art director, the writer next to you, you say, look what I did, look what I did. Sort of the memory of those classic Volkswagen ads was still there. And then I um, eventually left and started my own agency. Um, um, but, you know, I think because I came from a creative background and creative director background, for me now, in, in terms of the strategy work I do, I connect the dots in a way that a lot of people in, quote, branding don't, because mo a lot of people in branding come from the MBA side of the house, and they're very theoretical. Nothing wrong, nothing wrong with it, as they say, but... Um, you know, unless you've sold something to somebody, unless you've written a commercial, a radio commercial, a TV commercial, start, of course, when you start off, you're not doing TV, you're doing little print ads. We used to call them trade ads. Now it's B2B. We used to call them trade ads. Um, you learn the mechanics, the physics, if you will, of, of, of marketing. And I think it's hard for somebody who's never really been a practitioner to kind of come in with a theoretical model of here's what the brand should be without understanding how to execute it. Who did you learn the most from? If you look back at your career, who are the, 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 the people that you look back on that? Uh... I think you learned, it's a great question. I think you learned different things from different people. So I worked for a woman named Mary Wells, who's still alive at 92 or something like that. I think she just won a medal at Cannes. She was the first woman to run a New York stock exchange company of any kind, not just an agency. So obviously in those days, you know, it wasn't easy. Um, she was fearless. I, I learned fearlessness from her and um, the ability to sort of understand what a client needs, but still come back at them with something they didn't expect. 
and and challenge them, but not threaten them. So it's a nuance. But I, I she was a, she was a great a great figure, and um, she also you know ran an agency um, with a great deal of creative energy, and you know the suits, if you were, as we're not really. They cowered. The suits cowered because she wouldn't take any crap. And if they couldn't sell the work, she'd send it back again. And if they couldn't sell it the third time, she'd pick up the phone and call the client and say, you know, what the fuck, basically. Uh, <laughs> so I learned a lot from her in terms of leadership and and um, sort of human dynamics. Um, I worked with an art director um, earlier in my career named Alan Kay, who... Um, is well known for the "If you see something, say something" campaign, mm-hmm. and um, he's still a friend of mine. He's retired. Well, he, you know, he wouldn't like me to say that. He's he's still working, uh, but he's not. He just he sold his agency, and uh, I just learned about the power of a simple idea and stripping things away, and you know, result resisting the risk of overcomplication, which is a real risk in any category, but particularly B2B, which I know we're going to be talking mm-hmm. about because it's complex. And the temptation, and smart people are reasonably smart people. People who think they're smart are pretty good at add, adding layers of complexity to things. So sometimes what I do is I say, kind of the answer is there. We just have to kind of strip everything away. It's way sometimes a psychiatrist or a psychologist does that. They Somebody says something that's their truth, and then they make sure that that emerges from all the um, all the noise around it. So signal to noise ratio is, is super important in what I do. And Alan was a good teacher there. Very good. I was young. I was just out of college, and he had he had been working for a decade. So he was a good person to learn from. And do you feel like you've maybe this is too easy a question, but uh, please go how ahead. Did you f- <laughs> Give me an easy question. Uh, um, how did you figure out what you wanted to do when you grew up? My my kids are just really wrestling with that, and I and I feel like I should be able to solve that problem, but I I I I can't. How, how, what was it that happened in your life? That the good news for them is it, it's not what they want to do when they grow up; it's what things they want to do. I mean, the the era of one career is gone. Um, the stigma of jumping around is gone. In fact, a lot of employers want somebody who's had just a wild, unpredictable diversity of backgrounds. You know, um, when you read, I'm, I'm, I'm just rambling here, but it's sort of interesting. When you read, you know, a blur, a bio in a book, right? It used to be, he's a novelist. He went to college. He went to, got an MFA and he became a writer. Today, what does it say? He worked as a janitor, you know, he was a drug addict and then he became a writer. So, Tell your kids they don't have to decide forever. So yeah. I just thought I I enjoyed I like the I like the um, art meets science um, aspects of advertising. I guess I was too lazy to be a, to try to be a real writer, you know, to write the great American novel, as many people do, as you know, from Mad Men. Right. So if you if you're if you're if you love language and you love being able to express something in a new way and you need immediate gratification. Hey, it's the greatest career in the world because you get pretty much immediate gratification, right? Client says, Hey, this is great. I love it. You know, you don't have to work three years in your garret and then have the publisher send it back. So 
Yeah. And and how do you feel about the Don Draper, um, the role of Don Draper as, as this sort of icon? It's be very easy to compare you to that. Uh, would that well, be no, offensive? Say, or? You know, you know, maybe because I worked for a woman for a long time, and I never really were. I never really saw the kind of licentious, you know, um, sexist, misogynist behavior. Um, never, honestly. And I, so I worked for a woman. So and a lot of women were promoted in that agency. And then I worked at smaller boutique creative agencies where you didn't have that kind of politics where the work was paramount and, you know, women were treated equally, not just to say that it didn't cause a retrospect. But that went on in big agencies. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it might have been exaggerated, and but there was a lot of that um, behavior that went on. And a lot of, you know, a lot of smoking. Obviously, I worked, the agency I worked at, which... Um, which was run by Mary Wells, had Philip Morris as a client. And um, in those days, obviously, you smoked at the office. Every every seat at the conference room had an ashtray and a pack of Benton Hedges was the client. A pack of Benton Hedges there. And you had literally, you had to smoke to work on the, even if you had to fake it, to work on the client. So we've come, you know, um, yeah, it's changed. But uh, there was a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of cannabis going on so now one of those things is, is socially acceptable <laughs> yeah um and from there to obama I, i'm sure you get asked about that a lot but i, I was uh, again stalking you online and i saw an article that you wrote criticizing um oh. one of no no obama uh oh. one of his ads um you, you oh, said yeah. it was tep tepid mush yeah. is, is that how you ended up working for him is no like... I, I i end i ended up um we had a mutual friend he went to um he went to law school with uh with a friend of his and a friend of mine um julius janikowski who ended up running the fcc and julius was putting together a team of people who understood technology because that was really um a centerpiece of the campaign and um his sort of view of the world and the economy so um, I was put up, they had a committee, I was on the committee and, um, my, my role was focusing on, um, the get out the vote, particularly in colleges, but just to, what's interesting and is people are talking about it now, but it really, I don't think got the credit it really deserved. So obviously it was a small team, you know, hard to raise money in those days before he started to really gain traction. So Basically, in a traditional campaign, you have a very top-down, very, very uh, hierarchical organization. Nobody, other than someone who works on the campaign, could really do phone banking because they were afraid the message would get out of control. But we realized early on, and this was a few people, that we had to empower. We had to flatten the hierarchy. So we, we, there was phone banking that any volunteer pretty much can do. We had to deliver the technology in order to make the voter rolls available and to create some kind of an infrastructure. This is before Facebook. Um, but the idea was that volunteers, if you give them a script, would represent the campaign well. And if they didn't, if they went off script, if there was a problem, you would deal with it, but you would still then have the power, we now call crowdsourcing, we didn't call it crowdsourcing then, of all these young people who were just so passionate for Obama. And, it really changed the game in a number of states because the coverage was so much more vast that you can get if you had a traditional, you know, politician, uh, political um, uh, candidate, uh, not political, if you had volunteers um, 
directly working from the campaign as opposed to just coming together in a loose agglomeration. So um, that was pretty exciting to to watch that capability being constructed. Yeah, and obviously to great effect. Actually, my wife works um, in uh, voter registration. She works for a, uh, a nonprofit called Inspire, which is set up by a civil rights lawyer, and uh, um, they could probably uh, use, uh, use some you of your help. You better get her to Texas. Yeah, yeah. Adam, I think this has been a bountiful discussion, a lot of great ideas, uh, a lot of humanity, uh, a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. I loved it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, that's the end of this week's show. I want to thank Jesse Hazelrig for production, Aaron Hammock for doing the editing. I want to thank you for listening to what I hope was an enjoyable conversation. Do tell your friends, uh, like us, rate us. It's really important uh, to get the word out. And look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks' time with the next episode of Mr. Beacon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.